regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi, listeners. This is Datacast. Why hold long-form in-depth conversations with data practitioners and researchers to unpack the narrative journeys of the career? My guest today is Doris Lee, a co-founder and CEO of Ponder, a startup delivering scalable enterprise-ready pandas that improve the productivity of data teams. Doris graduated with a PhD from UC Berkeley Rice Lab in 2021, where she developed data science tools to accelerate inside discovery. So Doris, it's my pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me on the show today, James. Fabulous. To start our conversation, I did a little bit of research on your background, and I figured that you completed your bachelor degree in physics and astrophysics from UC Berkeley back in 2016. At Berkeley, you also got involved with a variety of research projects quite early, such as working at the Astrophysical Fluid Dynamics Group at Princeton, the Big Data Genomics Group at Berkeley AMP Lab, and the Scientific Data Measurement Group at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. So yeah, how did such research involvement affect your Berkeley experience? Yeah, I started off my career in, in physics and astrophysics, and it was really during this time where I experienced firsthand sort of the challenges that scientists face when they're working with data. Um, so this was around like 2014 to 2016, and the data tooling landscape looks quite different than it is today. Data science was still somewhat of a nascent field, and I was really interested in applying some of these emerging data science techniques to my astronomy research And that was when I realized that, hey, data scientists actually have a really hard job. They not only need to be an expert in their domain, but they also need to learn statistics, machine learning, programming, and know how to work with large data sets. And in the face of working with big data, even the most basic thing that you might want to do with your data can take up to multiple weeks and is often a challenge. That seeded sort of some of the initial inspirations for my uh, further research. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I'm curious what kind of data you work on for your physics class and your physics project. Yeah, some of these are in the form of like survey data from telescopes. So these would be like astronomical images that are captured by a telescope. There's also simulation data. So typically what happens in theoretical astrophysics is people would simulate young stars or black holes. So that was one of the uh, research that I worked on. So all the the center of this is like working with a ton of data, uh, having these like astronomical, literally astronomical scale data that you're working with um, and having to apply some of these cutting edge statistical techniques uh, and machine learning methods to be able to extract insights from it. Yeah, thanks for sharing that context. Just kind of back up a little bit. Why did you become interested in doing research instead of maybe getting internship doing particle industry experience? Why do you, you know, follow that path? Yeah, I was really interested in sort of learning more about astronomy as an undergrad in the field. And research was kind of the way to learn more and also be able to leverage kind of cutting edge tools and really working on a deep problem. So that was something that I really enjoyed uh, even during my first summer. So I continued to do that uh, throughout my time at Berkeley. And so 
after you finished your undergrad, it seems like you really enjoyed doing research and therefore you decided to pursue a PhD program. And this one is in actually in computer science at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. So yeah, why did you choose to pursue a PhD degree in a different field at this time? Yeah, that's a really great question. And so one of the things I mentioned earlier was kind of having this firsthand experience of how just how difficult it is for as a scientist to work with data and to get to insights. And so I went to the PhD program looking to, to build tools and systems that makes it easier for people to visualize and explore their data. And this was particularly focused around non-programmer and folks like myself who aren't really coming from a computer science background. And at a very high level, I was really excited about this idea that there's so much knowledge we can unlock as a society as a whole, and how data can drive better decision making if more of these tools were accessible to a large percentage of the population. And that really drove, that theme really carried across both my research during the PhD and some of the work that I'm doing now. Yeah. And also why UIUC at this point? Yeah, it was mostly an alignment between like research interest and the professor and the, the faculty that were there at that time. And that really uh, allowed me to pursue this specific line of research that I, I was looking at. I remember particularly that uh, there was actually a supercomputing center right across from the computer science division. So I thought that was a really cool way to also engage in domain scientists as I was building these tools. I did that during the first couple of years of my PhD. Thanks for providing that context. Let's talk a little bit about this research project that you work on earlier in your PhD career. According to my understanding, you helped develop some of the no-code interactive visualization interface to accelerate users towards data inside discovery. And in particular, you build two projects. The first one is called VistPilot, and the second one is called ZenBSH. And these are visual exploration assistant that can help accelerate the data exploration process via data analysis and pattern search. Well, first of all, would you mind kind of sharing a little bit about the motivation for this to work and then, you know, maybe the mechanism of the solution? Yeah. At the beginning of my PhD, the problem that I was really tackling was this process called like the exploratory data analysis process. And in particular, what we found was that a lot of people typically use visualization to explore their data, but Often in this very exploratory process, you have to generate large numbers of visualizations to be able to even look for an insight. And so, for example, in the case of Zenvisage, we looked at this problem of pattern search for line charts. So let's say that if an astronomer is interested in a line chart where, you know, the trend is going up and then it's going down and they want to look for other patterns that look like that, they might have to comb through thousands and thousands of different visualizations in order to find one pattern that matches that. And so you could imagine that this is a really tedious and cumbersome process. It's very error prone and often requires generating a lot of chart and analysis. And so a lot of my early work was around this idea of building a visualization recommendation system. Mm -hmm. So essentially systems that automatically recommend interesting insights based on some statistical analysis or, or properties that the system discovers. And we automatically suggest this to the data analyst or the user. And these types of systems often address questions like, 
you know, what are some of the interesting filters that you should apply to your data in order to find interesting insights and where the differences are significant and meaningful. And the other problem that I talked about, which is what other line charts look also similar to this one, this particular one that I found. And so across both VizPilot and ZenVisage, it was really focused around a single analysis task, a single visual analysis task, and seeing if we could build systems to help accelerate users to the insights. Yeah. What was the state of the literature for visual recommendation at the point? And what is it a big problem? And was there any, the novelty of your solution to tackle those? Yeah. Yeah, that's a really great question. And I think that's a question that I definitely thought a lot about as I was working on these projects and subsequently afterwards. At that point, there was a lot of research work that was done in visualization recommendation systems. Some of them were focused on, you know, what types of visualizations should I recommend for a given set of, you know, X and Y axes that you've picked. Other types of recommendation is more data oriented. So the ones that I worked on, the two that I mentioned was more data oriented. It was more about searching through this large sort of data set, the space of visualization that is possible, and then picking something that was statistically interesting or based on the user's query. And it was kind of interesting because the visualization recommendation system literature has been around for a good part of, I would say, like one to two decades. But very few of these systems actually made it into commercial products or even scientific tools that people were using day to day. So that actually became one of the themes of my research was really thinking about, hey, you know, given this really broad set of literature and existing work that we had in this space, how do we apply some of these principles into tools that people can adopt in their day to day work and help them become more productive in their analysis? Yeah, it sounds like as you move on with your research, you already plan a seed in your mind about the potential commercial adoption of your work, right? You already think about like how... Yeah, I don't think it was as much of a commercial adoption in the first place. I was just purely thinking about, hey, for the scientists, uh, for the domain scientists that I work with, at that time, I was working with astronomer, material scientist, and uh, domain scientist in this space. And they were really struggling kind of with the tools that they had at that time. And so it was very much focused on like, how do we make these tools more useful for these domain scientists? And the commercial sort of stuff came a little bit later after I moved to Berkeley. Gotcha. Thanks for sharing a little bit of the context. And Let's talk about the transition to UC Berkeley. So uh, in 2019, you transferred to the PhD program in information management system at the Rice Lab and the high school at UC Berkeley following your advisor, Aditya Paramaneshwaran. So I'm curious, how have the Rice Lab and the high school environment, how shaped your thinking around working with end users and building research visualization tools that can serve you know, the needs of the distance community? Yeah, I would consider myself extremely lucky to be part of the RISE Lab and iSchool. I think being part of both research institutions provided very different perspectives that were very complementary to each other. So the iSchool, the School of Information at Berkeley is very well known for cutting edge research that is in very highly interdisciplinary fields. And in particular, a lot of my PhD work sort of sat at this intersection between human-computer interaction, databases and data management, as well as data science. And so this work was extremely user-driven. A lot of the things that we mentioned earlier was really centered around questions around adoption. It wasn't really about creating the most novel tool. It was about thinking about how the users can adopt these tools. And 
At the same time, I was part of the RISE lab. Many of you have probably heard of the AMP lab. So the AMP lab is the research lab that incubated uh, Apache Spark and Databricks. And then the RISE lab was the lab that came after that. So a lot of many successful open source startups have came out of the RISE lab. And the RISE lab was kind of unique in the sense that it was very impact driven. Like people were working on these very exciting open source tools. And not only were there amazing research papers that came out, there was also tools that were made available to the public and people tried it out. And in fact, we often had like industry visitors, industry sponsors that talked to us about the ways that they could potentially use these tools in their work environments. And that synergy between being at the iSchool and being at the RISE Lab really set the seeds for some of the work that I was doing. And in particular, I think sitting at this very exciting sort of intersection, I started thinking about what is the broader impact of uh, the work that I was doing? And namely, how can some of the tools that we've been building affect the lives of data scientists? And so a lot of this adoption-oriented question sort of drove the later half of my research. Yeah, thanks a lot for sharing that context on how being in those environments really shaped your thinking. So you mentioned high school is, is an interdisciplinary work, right? When you collaborate a lot with SCI, database, visualization, et cetera. Can you talk more a bit, like what are some of the types of the fields that your collaborators come from? And I'm curious, like how do you collaborate effectively with people that come from so many diverse backgrounds? Yeah, I think it's really this appreciation around seeing the different perspectives that experts from different fields can bring. I worked with a lot of really amazing human-computer interaction researchers at the iSchool, including Marty Hurst, Nilofar Salehi, and all of them sort of helped me understand that there were different user-driven sort of evaluation methods beyond sort of systems building that I can incorporate in my work in order to make the evaluation and the, the overall like analysis of the the systems and the research um, more holistic. And so that was a very interesting place that I was able to uh, work with these amazing researchers on. Yeah, I really like that part about that combination of user-driven and system-driven makes your work more holistic. Mm -hmm. A little bit about RISE Lab, you mentioned that this is the place that incubate a lot of open source projects that later become very well-known companies in the world. And you mentioned also there's a lot of speakers, industry people that come into the school and foster this kind of partnership, right, between academia and mm-hmm. industry. Can you share a little bit more about that? And what is the mindset that PhD student researchers in Rice Lab got adopted when being surrounded in that environment? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I think the RISE Lab was really a, a unique place that facilitates this type of cross-disciplinary research. What was really interesting was that during the time that I was in RISE Lab, I wasn't the only person that was working on data science-related tools. There were multiple students that were interested in the area. And the RISE Lab had this culture of collaboration and working with each other where everyone is bringing their strength and skills. So it was really interesting to work with folks that came with deep distributed systems background or people that were experts in programming languages and how that applies to data systems. So we were all coming at the very similar sets of problems around Jupyter notebooks and around data science tools, data frames, data processing in Python, but all in very different angles. And I thought that was one of the reasons probably why there were so many successful projects that came out of Rise Lab was just putting all the different sort of expertise into one room and the collaboration that can come out of that. So I really enjoyed that experience and working with other PhD students, faculty that were in the lab. 
Yeah, thanks for sharing that context a lot. It's also this transition from UIC to UC Berkeley really is also the transition of your focus mm-hmm. coming from a system mindset to a more holistic mindset, just by osmosis of showing yourself with these experts from different fields. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So just kind of circling back into your research. So the focus of your PhD dissertation is to make data exploration and visualization easier and more accessible through automation. So when you look back on the arc of your PhD experience, what's the thread that ties your research together? I think one of your earlier questions was around the state of the research literature in this space, right? And what we found was that a lot of work in this space really addressed this question of how do we get to insights faster? How do we show more interesting insights to the users? But my dissertation really focused around asking the deeper questions around adoption. So how do these tools actually fit into the user's typical analysis workflow? So we wrote a paper in collaboration with Tableau, really looking into the different ways that people People are asking questions and the next steps that they take in their analysis and building that into a recommendation system. And other questions that I sort of asked was, you know, how do we design these recommendation tools so that it's embedded into the user's workflow in a way that's not intrusive, but really helpful along their path of exploration? And so many of these sort of adoption-driven questions and the ways that we design these tools sort of sowed the seeds of what we're doing now at Ponder, sort of this user-driven, adoptions-driven way of thinking about tool design. Yeah. And in particular, one of the projects that can now your work is an open source project called Lux, which is a general purpose visual exploration assistant situated within a computational notebook that provides proactive, always on recommendation within an exploratory programming workflow. So my question is twofold. First, why does visually exploring data in data frames remain tedious? And then second, what are the high-level system design and optimization within Lux? that you build into to address such a need? So to answer your first question around why visually exploring data in terms of data frames is so tedious, one of the things we talked about in visual data exploration is there's just so many decisions that you have to make in order to get to an insight. And in the context of working with data frame, this is made even more challenging because people are often in these Jupyter notebook type of environment where they're iterating on their data. They can and try out various different transformation ways of cleaning and featureizing their data. So there's a ton of, there's even more things that they can try out in a notebook context. But the problem is that it's still very hard to be able to get to these insights for the reasons that we mentioned earlier. But even on top of that, people, instead of working in an interactive interface where, you know, maybe you're in a BI tool like Tableau, where you can point and click and you create these charts very easily. In a Jupyter Notebook environment, when you're working with data frames, you have to write a ton of code to be able to just generate a single visualization. So that's a lot of work, a lot of code that you have to write throw away, iterate on over time to be able to even do a basic set of analysis. And so we saw a lot of friction in this process as we started to talk to data scientists and started looking into ways that we can lower this friction of exploration because this barrier to exploration often hinders the ways that people are doing their analysis. And sometimes it introduces a lot of challenges. So we started thinking about the design of Lux and Lux went through many design iterations 
But at a very high level, Lux is essentially a visualization tool that is built on top of the Pandas data frame. So essentially, Lux goes in and search for visual insights, interesting insights to automatically display to the user. And what it looks like in the Jupyter Notebook experience is whenever you're working with the Pandas data frame, typically whenever you print out the data frame, you see uh, rows and columns of your data. So this is just like the raw table that is displayed to you. But that information, uh, while useful, is a limited slice of what you can do with your data. It's just the raw values that are in your data. And so with Lux, what you do is whenever you print out the data frame, you not only get this table view with rows and columns of values, but you also get this dashboard of visualizations and insights that are automatically surfaced to you. And all you have to do is click a single button to toggle back and forth between the visual view and the tabular view. And all of this is displayed to you at every point in your analysis without you having to do any work. Uh, so we kind of called this the always-on approach to visualization recommendation in the sense that the visualizations are always displayed to you whenever you need them uh, in your analysis. And so with Lux, really, it was centered around this design principle of how do we give our users the superpowers of being able to look at more visualizations, being able to do their analysis more easily without requiring them to change their code or anything that they're doing about their analysis. And this was one of the core inspiration for a lot of the work that we're doing at Ponder, which is really around this transparent, seamless way of, again, giving data scientists and data teams the superpower of being able to run their analysis more effectively. Yeah, thanks for providing that context. Another follow-up point that I want to ask about Vlog is the adoption of the project and community engagement. So I believe that you actually have given a lot of podcasts and talks about Lux in the past one or two years or so, and I'll be sure to include those in the show notes as well for anyone who mm-hmm. interested in kind of learning about how it works based on what Doris just talked about. But in terms of the open source community engagement, to date, Lux has been downloaded more than 100,000 times and has over 3,000 stars on GitHub. And there's a very vibrant community with many articles, blog posts, and tweets about the project. Can you share a little bit about the process of evangelizing Lux? What what works for the creators and engaging contributors? Yeah, yeah, that's a really great question. And I think this part of working with the open source community and really seeing how users use Lux in the community was one of the most rewarding parts of my PhD. And as I mentioned earlier, Lux actually went through many different design iterations. So the first time we put it out there in the open source, there wasn't all that much traction and GitHub stars and downloads and all of that because we started with a very cumbersome API. Like you had to write all of this like code that was required to print out the visualization. So it actually went through many, many iterations until this like very minimal design that we eventually end up with, which is this, you print out the data frame and you automatically get uh, all of these visualizations for free displayed to you at all times. And throughout the development process, we also addressed scalability issues, being able to work on a bunch of different data types. So this was quite different from my other experiences in working on research prototypes. In most research prototypes, you maybe you have a handful of data sets and then you're going through a typical user workflow. And as long as the data set works on the system for these very narrow scenarios, then you know you don't necessarily need to go too much beyond that. But in a real world system where data scientists are using this uh, day-to-day, there's 
thousands of different bugs and edge cases that can come up. And so a lot of, I spent a good part of six to 12 months really trying to make sure that all the edge cases, bugs, things that people can run into in these analysis situation were covered. And that was a very long process. But I think at the end, that was one of the reasons why Lux was really well adopted because it was a very polished user experience. And on top of that, like the errors that we displayed were interpretable. It was there wasn't any jarring user experience. And so all the engineering work that went into adoption paid off at the end. Yeah, thanks for sharing that context. I guess besides you, there are probably other people, collaborators who you collaborate with to develop Lux, right? Yeah, I worked with a team of really amazing students, faculty that on the project. And a lot of the students that I worked with, undergrad and master students, contributed uh, very much to the open source. And they have as much credit in terms of making Lux a success as I do. And so it was really a team effort in making this happen. For sure. And one final note about that process of making Lux you know, polished and well adopted. So you mentioned like users coming back with this request, fixing bugs. And I'm sure like given the popularity of the project, there must be a lot of those bugs, right? How do you prioritize the roadmap of the project given the abundance of issues that you can fix? Yeah, James, that's a really great question. And I think that's a question that a lot of open source developers, especially if you're working in a very small agile team, need to think about in terms of prioritization and what, you know, what features you're working on, what bug fixes you're working on. I think in general, what we saw was that there was a lot of issues and questions around how do you get the data into Lux, into the system? And so there was one category of question, which was just like, IO trying to get the data in. The other sets of questions was more around like Lux was kind of a wrapper around pandas. And so how do you make the API more compatible with pandas, edge cases that come up? Sometimes pandas release a new version. And so there's certain APIs that are mismatched and all of these like little details really contributes to the overall user experience. And I think what we did was we definitely worked backwards and said, hey, there's like two or three different issues all pointing to the same issue. So it's something that should be highly ranked and we should address right away versus issues that seem like a very obscure sort of pandas error message and call, and it's not as frequently used. So we stack ranked the features based on the user requests that we were hearing. Yeah, segment based on priorities, like you said, mm-hmm. data IO and compatibility with pandas, right? Yeah. So let's you know discuss your current journey. So you graduated from Berkeley last year. You defend your PhD thesis, but then right after you finished your academic work, you have been the co-founder and CEO of Ponder, and you co-founded the company with your advisor Aditya, and then a fellow Berkeley PhD alum named Devin. Pono's mission is to improve data science productivity by empowering users to do data science at all scales. Can you share the story behind founding the company? Yeah, my co-founders and I have been working at the Rise Lab for a while around these open source projects, Lux and Modin. All of the work that we were doing was really centered around the experience of people using the Pandas data frame. And as we were talking to users in our open source community, Devin led the uh, Modin project and I was leading the Deluxe project. We heard over and over from data scientists, from data teams around this pain point of using pandas on large data sets. And for the folks in the audience who aren't familiar with pandas, pandas is 
essentially a Python data analysis library that it's often dubbed as the most important tool in data science. And the reason why Pandas is so amazing is because it's so flexible and it's so expressive and it lets you do a lot of things that you would want to do with your data. For example, feature engineering, data cleaning, data analysis, even visualizations, and so on. And with the growth of AI and machine learning, there's really a need to go back to the basics and clean your data, wrangle your data, and transform your data before you actually feed it into the model. And so this is where we are seeing the strongest pull for Pandas. But over and over again, like what we are hearing is that Pandas is really great for operating on small amount of data in your Jupyter notebook, you're playing around with the data, you're iterating, but it doesn't really work on large data sets. And so the three of us sort of worked together and inspired by some of these stories that we were hearing, we built Ponder on the idea that data teams should be able to operate on data at scale using the tools that they know and love. And in this case, it means working with pandas. And one of the key value propositions from both Lux and Modin is, is around this idea that users shouldn't have to change a single line of code in order to get to these scalability and usability benefits. And so that became really the core of what we started to work on at Ponder. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that context a little bit about the problem statement, as well as, as you know, the opportunity that you see to start a company. First of all, like when did you and your cohort actually conceptualize the idea? Is it like, you know, towards the end of your PhD or already kind of happened in your mind? Like it might be a a startup opportunity at some point. Yeah, it was definitely towards the end of our PhDs, probably like a semester before we finished our program. And Devin, my co-founder, was working on Modin at that time. I was working on Lux. And we collaborated on various research projects. And we started talking about this, this idea around like pandas and the scalability issues. Even in Lux, we were seeing a lot of scalability concerns and issues. And so there's a lot of synergy across the two projects that we worked on. And slowly we started thinking about the idea of what does it mean to take these open source projects after we graduate? How do we make the most impact with the existing traction that we've been able to build with these open source community? And that kind of sowed the seeds for uh, starting a company around it. Yeah, I really like that part about how do you make the best use of the traction of the open source project? You want to make the best use of, you know, all these people who contribute and this momentum that you have. And that's sort of the main drive for starting Ponder, right? Yeah, definitely. And what's the meaning behind the name Ponder? Yeah, that's a really great question. So the name Ponder, obviously, it's around thinking about the data. Because we're so focused on the exploratory phases and this analysis phase in data analysis, we thought about Ponder as a good name for thinking about the data and our tools being able to help people ponder about their data. Other interesting play on ponder is that ponder and pandas can both be abbreviated as PD. And so we thought it was a really interesting play on the word ponder, making enterprise ready a pandas a, a reality. And if you actually take a look at the logo, this is a fun little thing. Our logo is actually a P and a D into a square. So if you're curious, you could definitely go to our website and check that out. Very cool, yeah. I'll be sure to include that logo in the show notes mm -hmm. uh, so people can dissect a little more. Let's actually go a little bit deeper into the technology, ponder, and you kind of already, you know, allude to it in your previous answer. I got a chance to read the announcement about Ponder written a couple months ago. 
you know, solving the fragmentation challenges across the data stack by developing enterprise-ready pandas that are scalable, intelligent, usable, and efficient, while at the same time preserving the rich pandas API and behavior that millions of users depend on already. And you already talked about sort of the ubiquitous adoption of pandas and the goal of pandas really to solve some of the, you know, scalability and usability issue. Kind of looking at the broader modern data science tooling ecosystem, like how do you see pandas fit into that tooling stack? That's a really great question. And as I mentioned earlier, Pandas is a hugely popular tool. It's pretty much found in every single data organization that is out there that's using Python and doing data science and analysis. But the unfortunate thing is that Pandas is not very efficient and doesn't scale very well. And so oftentimes what we find in these organizations is that there's this division between what people are doing on the small scale in mm-hmm. prototyping and experimenting mm-hmm. with their data and what people are doing at the large scale in terms of deployment, in terms of productionization, and oftentimes just being able to work with the sheer amount of data that they have to process through. And what we saw was this huge gap between the two, sort of the small scale and the large scale. And oftentimes as a workaround, what people need to do is they go through this very costly translation process of having to take their Jupyter notebooks uh, with all their pandas code and having to rewrite that into a big data framework. So that could often mean writing this in Spark or in SQL. And it really isn't a great use of the data team's time because it's literally the same workload, but just being able to run on a cluster or even large amounts of data. And you have to essentially rewrite your entire workflow. And anecdotally, what's really interesting is one of the data teams that we spoke to recently went through this process of taking one of their existing Pandas workload, and they went through a six-month process of rewriting this into Spark. So you can imagine a lot of engineering resources went into this, and it's a very inefficient process just so that they can operate on this larger data set. So nothing about the code and what it did changed. It was really around just rewriting this into Spark so that they can operate on large data sets. And so pretty much all the data teams that we spoke to who are using Pandas have experienced this pain point at some point in their journey in using Pandas for data analysis. And we saw this very huge unmet need for something that's so basic and fundamental because using pandas is such a basic part of the entire data science process and still a, pretty much an open problem in this space. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, you mentioned that big gap between small scale data set and then that sort of large data set. And then the main users of ponderous is data scientists, right? And instead of they have to, to rewrite the code, they can just remain in their work environment with the familiar tool running by us instead of like learning Spark or SQL. Yeah. Um, so less entry barrier to learning a new technology, but kind of like still being able to do accomplish the same outcome with a familiar work environment. So we talked a little bit about that project Modern right earlier, and this is a project led by your co-father, Devin. And Pondo is basically a combination of Modern and Lux. And we talked about Lux earlier, which solved the usability of data frames and Modern's really try to solve the scalability data frames. So yeah, could you mind giving the listeners a brief overview of Modern? And so at Ponder, we really believe that, you know, data scientists should be able to focus on doing their analysis, getting to the 
insights. And so they shouldn't have to worry about all these scalability challenges, uh, which can slow them down and hinder their ability to get to insights. And as a result, throughout some of our research at the RISE Lab and at Ponder, what we've done is we've developed an open source tool called Modin. And Modin essentially acts as a faster and more scalable version of Pandas. It's essentially a drop-in replacement for Pandas, which means that all you have to do is change a single line of import. So instead of doing your typical import Pandas as PD uh, at the beginning of your notebook or beginning of your script, all you have to do is import Modin.Pandas as PD. And with that single line of code change, you can continue to use all of the same Pandas code that you typically Typically, you use the same API, and all of a sudden, you're now able to operate on uh, large amounts of data, and you won't run into some of the typical issues that you would run into if you were using Pandas. And one of the reasons that's the case is because Pandas is inherently single-threaded. It's not paralyzed. And so Modin actually paralyzed 600 and more Pandas API. And so that data scientists wouldn't have to worry about the scaling process and translating into these large-scale use cases. Thanks for unveiling the current yeah, the technologies and what makes you know the scalability challenge to be addressable. And Modin is also an open source project and up until this point, it's already had over 2.5 million downloads. And there's some of the users include companies like Intel and, and Microsoft, I believe. Did you see any similarities in terms of the successful adoption with Modern, like similar to how you see with Lux? Yeah, definitely. I mean, Modin has even a stronger sort of community, a ton of contributors to our community as well as uh, users. And that has really, like having the user community in the early days have really helped us focus in on prioritizing what are the important things to work on and really serve as a motivation for the research and the engineering work that we were doing. For example, one of the things that Modin really shines at is this idea of, of being able to cover a large percentage percentage of the pandas api and that allows us to say hey you know you could take your pandas code and be able to scale up on large data sets without having to change anything about your pandas api and this is actually even though it sounds trivial from a user experience perspective this is actually a lot of complex research and engineering work underneath the hood as i mentioned earlier pandas is really popular and one of the reasons why it's popular it's because pandas is such a flexible and expressive language. It has over 600 or so API. So you could imagine that this approach of going in and paralyzing every single function is just a very tough process. And so as part of the research work that we did at Berkeley, we really drew on the relational databases and distributed uh, systems and actually distilled this 600 or so Pandas API into a small set of core algebra that mm. we can then take to optimize, borrowing a lot of the principles that we see in relational databases in optimizing these queries. So that's actually how we're able to empower data scientists to have this zero code change experience in order to scale up their workflows. Yeah. Really simulate that 600 AI ML API function and then distill it into like a set of, like you said, called Jabra that can generalize to a lot of use cases across enterprise users, right? Mm-hmm. Now, we're already in the topic of talking about modern and Lux and how those projects can get even more adoption, right? Let's actually touch on that topic for the remaining part of our conversation. Taking up your research head and putting on your father head, commercializing open source projects. It's definitely not an easy task for any open source developers. What is the go-to-market strategy that you're most excited about in the upcoming months to drive more enterprise interest towards Ponder? 
Yeah. At Ponder, a lot of the work that we're doing is continuing to invest in the open source community. We really believe that we have this shared vision around how we can build and serve our community, which is at the core of what we're doing at Ponder. Right now, the two open source projects together has over 3 million downloads and over 10,000 GitHub stars. And from the enterprise and the customer side of things, we're also seeing a lot of enterprises and data teams in industry adopting these tools. So Modin and Lux is actually being used in 10% of uh, the Fortune 100 companies. And so this really emphasizes our core value proposition, which is this idea that Data scientists shouldn't have to change anything about their code or the way that they're using pandas to be able to get all of these enhancements and superpowers to the way that they're working with their data. And these projects really addresses a very critical pain that all data scientists who are using pandas experiences. And so as part of our go-to-market and what we're doing at Ponder, we're really working to support our community in using these tools and using them in both their data science team, as well as like data engineering teams and making these users more productive with their work, with what we're building. Yeah. I guess when you say supporting these users even more, that probably included activities like writing even better API documentation or like, you know, being more engaging within the Slack communities. Like it's about scale, right? It's just expanding the team to, to kind of keep maintaining this momentum as this project grows, I suppose. So. Yeah. Definitely. A lot of our engineers are very active on the open source community. There's often support issues that come through. And that's actually a really great way for us to, you know, engage and learn about the needs and challenges that come up. We talked a bit earlier about prioritization of features and bugs, uh, like which bugs should we address? And that's actually a really great way for us to say like, hey, these are really important issues that are coming from our community. And we should really spend you know, more engineering efforts on, on these ones versus other ones that are raised. So that's a really great, like the community is a great source of the ways that we are thinking about engineering and the roadmap ahead. Yeah. And I'll be sure to include the links to the Slack communities to the show notes so anyone interested can join and see the activities within those communities about modern and Lux. Mm-hmm. I want to emphasize a bit more on this transition from like open source project to building enterprise product. That's not a very easy transition, right? Especially if you do something for free and then now you need to commercialize it and build some enterprise product on top of it. What have been some of the challenges that your team had to overcome in order to find some of the early you know, design partners for Ponder across different industries. And, you know, there's a lot of different use cases on the website. But yeah, how did your team overcome that challenge? Yeah, there's definitely a very strong growing customer base that is coming organically to us from the open source. And some of the sectors where we see the most amount of like interest in, in using these tools include healthcare and pharmaceutical companies, tech companies as well as AI machine learning and finance sector. So really interesting mix of customers and users that we're seeing, use cases that we're seeing. As we are working very closely with these early customers, early design partners, one of the things that we're doing is helping them and working very closely with them to help them put Modin into production. In many of these cases, we were able to see success stories of Modin, seeing even orders of magnitude sort of speed ups just out of the box and performance improvements for some of our early customers. So it's been a really amazing journey and a great sort of learning experience on both sides uh, in terms of working with these early adopters. 
And as I mentioned earlier, this traffic has largely been organic. So we've been in stealth until March of last year. So it only came out of stealth in less than two months. And so people are actually coming to us, uh, not because there's a Ponder website or there's you know PR materials out there, but people are coming because this is the only thing out there that solves their problem. And they love the ability to work with Modin and the fact that they don't have to change a single thing about their code in order to get these benefits. And so uh, it's really been quite a discovery process to see all of these open source users and I'm working with them. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I'm curious, like looking forward for the rest of the year and maybe subsequent year as well, like any product features that you excited about to better serve the enterprise needs? Yeah, our engineering team is working very hard on both the open source and the product side. In terms of our product roadmap, it's very much driven by some of the insights from these early design partnerships and customer needs. So it, I think it's a really great process because we have a really good feedback loop between our customer base, our open source users and our community and what we're seeing in the enterprise side. And so this always drives great product development and product design efforts. So we're excited to look forward to what's new on that front over the next couple months. Yeah, thanks for providing that context. So moving away from product and go-to-market, hiring is another critical responsibility of any early-stage startup founder. What valuable lesson have you learned to attract the right people who are excited about Ponder's mission this far? One of the things about hiring is that given both my co-founder and I kind of came from a non-traditional path in coming into tech, we've always had this shared vision of building a company that really appreciates diversity of opinions where all voices are heard. And we really believe that people bring great ideas and there's a really huge potential for what you can achieve as a team when you try to listen and try to understand each other's perspective. And I think this is partly contributed to our hiring effort, our recruiting effort, because this culture that we've built, which encourages a healthy level of debate, but also a level of constructive feedback, is something that is very visible, very clear to any of the hiring candidates and folks that are considering to join Ponder. And so I think it's, what's really unique is this culture of how we think about growth and mentorship and ownership and being able to support each other and being the best version of ourselves has been key to how we were able to attract great talent and attract the right people who are excited about our mission. Yeah. Was there any particular resources, mentors, or any influence that inspire you for leadership style and building that culture? I think what was really interesting with company building and thinking about hiring is that there's always a good mix of what you can read from the books and the first principle thinkings that you have to do in order to make the right decisions for the company. And I think in our case, it was the three co-founders coming together, leveraging some of our past experience, both in academia and other paths of life and sitting down and saying like, what do we want to achieve as a team and the culture and the company that we want to build? And so it was really thinking deep about like what the culture means and the talent that we can attract through that. Yeah, I'm curious, what has been some of the more effective hiring channel that you rely on to source some of the first founding employees? My guess is probably a lot from academia, from the Rise staff, as well as some of the probably contributors to Modern Deluxe. But I'm definitely curious to hear your insights on that. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's definitely the case. So given that we were mostly in stealth through our, our hiring, like our first wave of hiring, most of these folks are folks from, you know, either our open, who have contributed to our open source communities, folks that we've worked with or in our first degree network. So a lot of them are from academia or, or from Berkeley. So yeah, mostly folks from our network. Gotcha. Thanks for sharing that. And I suppose you're probably hiring across the position. Right. Um, yeah, definitely. Now that you know the company has come out of stealth, we're definitely hiring across all of the uh, engineering positions, and we're super excited to see the diversity of like team that we were able to build over the period of building the companies. It's something that we we still remain really excited about as we grow the company. Yeah, definitely. I should include the links to open position within partners, so anyone should can apply and learn more and, and talk with ours. So we talk about employees, we talk about customer, talk about contributors. Another group I want to touch on is investors. Ponder raised a seed round led by Speed Venture Partners with participation from Intel Capital, ABC, the House Fund, and also by the pioneering angels. What fundraising advice could you give to fathers who are seeking the right investors for their startups? Yeah, I think the advice I'm going to give is probably going to be something that's like often less discussed in the entrepreneurship circle. So I think that founders often focus a lot on the first part of fundraising, which is, you know, finding the investors and, and pitching and how do you create an amazing slide deck for your fundraising effort. Um, I think my advice is going to be more about the second aspect of fundraising, which is often overlooked, I think, which is like aligning the values with the investor. So seeking a sort of value alignment with the investors who are eventually partners that you're going to be working with in the long term. And so really understanding, you know, who's the partner that you're going to work with in the long term? And are they aligned in the vision of the world and of the company? that you and your founding team are building towards. And that alignment is really the common place that everyone operates off of. And so we've been really lucky to have investors across the board, you know, at Lightspeed, at AVC, Intel, and the house fund who have this type of value alignment. And they've been wonderfully sort of supportive in helping us continue to execute and build on our mission in this journey. So really excited to see sort of what's next with our current team. Thanks for sharing that. Value alignment, really identify partners at these firms who I suppose have experience investing in this domain and have the right perspective on the product and whether that can align with your ideas for how the company can grow as well, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I want to conclude our main interview on a more personal note, thinking about your experience in both academia and now in the industry, what do you see to be the differences and similarities between being a researcher and being a father? Yeah, I think that the experience of being a researcher really taught me when it was necessary to leverage and build on top of existing work. And when was it crucial to think from first principles and develop something new, both, you know, for the company and more applicable, like to the research. And this is true for every single aspect of company building. We talked a bit about hiring, fundraising, and overall, you know, talking to customers, sales process and all of that. And as a team, I think we've always been really uh, mission driven. And I think that percolates down to the everyday decisions that we make in order to serve our community and the customers. So I think those are a lot of really interesting 
Uh, even though entrepreneurship and researchers, people typically think of them as like opposite ends of the spectrum. I think there's actually a lot of similarities uh, between the two and in these aspects. Yeah, that part about being on top of existing resources, that's a very nice analogy. Like mm-hmm. in research, you'd be on top of existing state of the art literature. And then mm-hmm. now in startup, you'd be on top of existing talent and yeah. investors and put customer to accelerate the growth of your company, right? I suppose that's, mm-hmm. a, that's kind of the mental model that you have. Yeah. So, Darius, at this part of conversation, I want to move into the final closing segment in which I'm going to ask you three rapid fire questions and then you can provide quick answers for the listeners. Number one, name three people in the data science community whose work you admire. Yeah, I think there's a ton of folks in the community, but I want to highlight some diverse voices and thought leaders in the space. So you're probably also familiar with folks like Chip Wen, Shreya Shankar, Parul Pandey, a lot of them doing really amazing work in this space and kind of shaping our conversation around data science and ML. Thanks for sharing that. Number two, name one book that you would recommend for people to cultivate a scientific mindset. Yeah, I'm not sure if there's a book that's top of mind, but I think it comes from many years of reading the research paper and scientific literature. And I think all aspect of cultivating a scientific mindset, asking the right questions, critical reasoning and empirical evaluation is something that takes many years and many books to accumulate. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. That's probably, there's no easy way, right? To, to, to <laughs> yeah. You become scientifically minded. And then finally, imagine that you can send out a single tweet to all the academics turn early stage founders on Twitter. What could you tweet about? I would probably tweet out to serve and always be helpful. This is something that we wake up every day and we work towards at Ponder. So to serve and always be helpful to our community, and that includes our users, our customers, and to each other. And as an early stage founder, my advice is always to listen to what your users are telling you and just be helpful and nothing else. And I think this principle that we've carried has been at the core of some of these amazing things that we were able to achieve as a company and the impact to the communities that we serve. Yeah, thanks, Doris. I think that's a brilliant way to end our conversation. So I really enjoyed talking with you today, learning about your earlier background in research in physics at Berkeley, your work later on at UIC and Berkeley that really focused on the study of visualization recommendation some interesting discussions surrounding commercial adoption and development of the two open source project Lux and Modern, your current journey with Ponder, building out the enterprise-ready Panda product to serve needs of the enterprise, as well as various insights related to product development, hiring, open source adoption, finding early customers, fundraising. And I think a lot of people are going to find a lot of these insights to be impactful, regardless of their position, whether in academia or in industry. I'll be sure to include everything that we discussed today in the show notes. So it's a subscription to take a look and follow the founder's journey in the upcoming week or so. So yeah, Dars, I really enjoy our conversation and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much for having me on the show, James. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. 
goodbye for now.